The Rangers fell short in part three of the battle for New York against the Islanders. We break down where the team stands, head into the All-Star break with New York Post Rangers beat writer Brett Sergalis. In Ron Remembers, I detail a story involving a celebrity lady from my past. And finally, we are joined by a Rangers teammate of mine turned survivor contestant, Tom Laidlaw. All that and more next on Up in the Blue Seats with the New York Post. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to center ice for a special presentation. Welcome to Up in the Blue Seats podcast, a New York Rangers podcast with the New York Post. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate the show five stars. Write a nice review on Apple Podcasts. Boost us up the charts as we're hitting the top 200 in the sports podcast in the U.S. The Post Rangers beat writer Brett Sergalis makes his debut on the show today, as well as former Ranger turned survivor contestant Tom Laidlaw. But now, here's your host of Up in the Blue Seats, number 10, Ron Duguay. Welcome. So now we've been... Talking about the Rangers and the Islanders, the Battle of New York. Rangers win two out of three. Unfortunately, they lose that last game. And just before the last game, they played Columbus and lost that game, having lost the last two, which puts the Rangers at 23-21-4, 50 points, 10 points back of that last playoff spot, which is Blue Jackets and the Flyers, who have 60 points. So is that the end for the Rangers? Well, not sure, because after the All-Star break, they come back. They go back-to-back against the last-place Detroit Red Wings, and then they have four home games. So there's still hope if they can come back from the All-Star game healthy with Panarin being healthy, Kreider being healthy, and trying to make a run at it. Now you talk about the All-Star game. Have I been there? Yes, I've been there. Been there one time, and it was in Washington. Greatly appreciated being there among all the celebs and all the great hockey players, Gretz was there, and so many. And I got to go to the White House. And at the White House, the president was uh, Mr. President Ronald Reagan. Got to do all that. As far as the game itself, the way I prepared back then and the way it was prepared is that we were encouraged to play hard in the game because we had an opportunity. If you were the most, M- play, uh, most valuable player in that game, you got to win a car. And so I can remember that night, everybody, most of the guys going out, and I just said, you know what, I, I'm just going home. I'm getting some sleep because I want to play hard tomorrow. And uh, sure enough, I had a good game, but I didn't win. But the reason I'm telling you all this is because how I feel about today's game. The skills competition is a lot of fun. It's all about the fans and the interaction with the players. It's fun. It's great fun. The players get to show their skills. But when it comes to the game itself, it's painful for me to watch. The fact that there's a lack of effort that's being put out in that game. And I'll keep it to you really simple. If I was coaching that team, and had those players, I would tell them this. Look it, absolutely we don't want anyone playing hard to the point where you may get hurt, but let's play this as hard as you would any practice. Okay, play as hard as you would in practice. Go out, have some fun, be entertaining, but play that hard. What we're seeing on the ice to me is very hard. It's painful for me to watch. There's a lack of effort, and I prefer not to watch. So that's just me. Let's get into everything blue shirts with the Rangers beat writer. We are now joined by Rangers beat writer for the New York Post, Brett Sergalis, who makes his debut on the podcast. Read his stories on the Post and at nypost.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Brett Sergalis. 
So, Brett, let's get right to it. Battle of New York Part 3 wasn't so much Part 3, but it was not anything that we were expecting. What are your thoughts on the game? They played okay, and, and they were... They were pretty happy with themselves afterwards, to be honest, which was a little surprising considering they were down for nothing. Um, but, you know, they had a big advantage in shots and chances. But, you know, it was just these little mistakes end up getting them. And it was it was a lot of those. So, you know, all right. So you played great for 55 minutes and those five minutes you're down for nothing. So, you know, it's kind of what it's kind of what got them when they played Columbus on Sunday. Um, it got them again. And, you know, they're getting to be a little bit more consistent. And I think that's kind of what they were telling themselves going into this break. Um, you know, kind of keep your head up. They're doing all right, even though they lost two in a row going in. But um, it was it was a lot different than the first two games I played against the Islanders, too. It really it felt like the game right before break, you know, the guy it didn't really feel like one of those old Rangers Islander games or even one of the first two of this series. So it was a little bit different, but you know, they have a lot to think about going into this break and it's kind of a bit of a sour note to end on. Yeah. Do you think that they're uh, still trying or just uh, still learning how to play against a team that decides to shut them down in a neutral zone, like what the Islanders did? Cause the Islanders went into that game and they felt like they needed to slow the Rangers down because they're capable of scoring. Are they still trying to learn to play through the clutter of the neutral zone versus they love open ice and they like to make plays. I think they're still learning how to play. Sometimes just a dump and chase works. Yeah, you're right, Ron. And that's, you know, they're a young team. The Like all these guys up front are skilled. They're offensive guys. They don't want to dump it behind and, and chase. They, that's not what they want to do. And, I think you saw these last two games and, you know, that's what Tortorella did with the Blue Jackets that, you know, playing the second game of a back-to-back with a goalie making his NHL debut. And, and that's what Trotz, that's kind of the way Trotz operates with the Islanders too. Cause he knows he doesn't have a, a ton of offensive skills. So, you know, the Rangers, they're learning, they're trying to learn, I guess is the way to say it, how to be patient um, and deal with that. Cause you know, they like to fly up and down the ice. They, they might like to say they don't want to trade chances, but that's kind of their forte. That's kind of their strength is running up and down the ice and letting the skill take over. So, so when you do when you do clog the neutral zone, when you when you when you don't turn it over, you know the Islanders didn't play great, but they didn't turn it over a ton, so they didn't fuel the Rangers' counterattack. You know the Rangers are going to have to learn how to be more patient. And this is now the template going forward of how to play them. You know, if you don't want to deal with Panarin and Strom and Zabanajad and, and then D'Angelo coming up on the back end and Fox, you know, that's the way that's the way to do it. Just slow them down and, and make them be patient and see if they can win games that way, because they haven't really proven that they can do that consistently. Yeah, they've been competing and then playing well enough, winning enough to think that there's still a chance to be able to possibly make the playoffs. But these last two games has kind of taken them out of it. And moving forward, most games are going to be played a lot more difficult because teams now are really competing and they're going to shut down, play well defensively to try to make the playoffs. So do you think their playoff hopes are pretty well uh, done with or can they still go on a run? Well, you know, and this is what I'm I'm writing today for tomorrow's paper is that, you know, right when they come back from this break, the first couple games, the first week or two are, are going to be pretty important because that's when management is going to have to start making decisions with the trade deadline coming up on February 24th. You know, so how aggressive is the front office going to be in terms of trying to accumulate 
draft picks and prospects going forward with some of the guys they have. You know, there's there's been a lot of talk recently uh, about Georgiev and and where he fits, and you know, you're not just going to give him away if he's if he's a, a key part of your team. And, and same thing for Kreider. And you know, JD has talked about the fact that sometimes the best development is putting these kids in in games that matter. You know, so if they sell off Kreider and they sell off Georgiev and they, and they get rid of a lot of these guys and, and Tony and and Jesper Fast, you know, if these guys all leave then and they're out of it, you know, then we've seen the last two years kind of what happens to teams. They kind of lose interest. And then how much are you really developing at that point? So, you know, are there are there playoff hopes gone? No, they're not gone. Um, as we've seen, you know, the league is so tight and it's hard to gain a lot of ground even by winning just because of three-point games so you know they're not gone but they're gonna have to come back out of the break and, and play really well and they're and that doesn't mean just play well they're gonna have to win um if they don't want to see a lot of their key pieces go and then not only are their playoffs hopes gone but kind of development gets stunted a little bit as well so I think I think this break is good. They, a lot of guys needed it a little bit. Looked like Strom needed a little bit of a break, um, the way he played last night. Um, you know, Kako played played arguably his best game in a, in a long time, but he was he's talked about how it's wearing him down. The season's wearing him down. So breaks come in at a good time. They come back. They're gonna have to win some games if right away if to, if they want to you know, dictate to the front office how to deal with the trade deadline and keep their playoff hopes alive. Okay, we talk uh, Panarin. You mentioned Panarin out of the game. Uh, it was the first time we saw the New York Rangers playing without their superstar, and it was a game where they could have needed him because he's a guy that in traffic can make plays, and he wasn't in that game. And apparently he's not going to the All-Star game. Kreider's going to replace him, and apparently you're going to the All-Star weekend. So what is it that uh, attracts you to the All-Star weekend? I know the... Um, it's 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 fun to see the skill competition competition, but the game itself. Do you enjoy the game that the way it's being played nowadays? The All Star Game, um, not really, <laughs> to be to be totally honest. Um, you know the all the All Star Game is for it's for the fans, really, and it's for the sponsors and uh, the people that are involved in the league around the edges, um, and don't get to see and be with these guys every day. And then when you go, it it's it is still special to these players. I know, I know there was some talk or Dylan Larkin, the Red Wings, said, "Please don't vote me in," you know. And I think a little bit of that is, yeah, these guys are looking for a break, and maybe St. Louis isn't exactly a, a destination city. Um, but you know, once these guys get around the best in the world, they're they're still they're pretty happy to be included in that group. You know, I remember being with Lundqvist last year and he, you know, guy that's been around, you know, he's seen everything. He's still excited to be around those guys. And, you know, they're collecting autographs from each, from each other and, and bringing the stuff home that hang on their walls. I mean, it still means something to them. It means something to the fans. Um, as somebody who covers this game every day, it doesn't mean a ton to me, but um it is fun to go to, and the NHL puts on good events. Um, and, you know, it, it does kind of stink for Panarin that he's not going because this was going to be his first one, which is which is weird to think about considering, I mean, that's only his fifth year in the league, but it's, you know, he's been such a good player. Um, 
So it stinks for him. It stinks for the Rangers because there would have been a lot of spotlight on him and the season he's having and and how he made such news over the summer. Um, so it, it kind of takes a little bit of the glamour off of that for the Rangers and for Panarin. But, you know, it's good for Kreider. He's, he's dealt with a lot this year. He's dealing with this contract situation. It hasn't been easy. He's the veteran in the room. Um, so it, it's nice for him. And, you know, it's a fun weekend for the people that go. Um, maybe not the funnest weekend for journalists though. Well, at the all-star break, I got to ask you, who do you think, who would you say is the most improved Ranger player? Strom has benefited so much from playing with Panarin as does everybody, but he he's, he's really run with it, grabbed it and run with the opportunity because, you know, he's, he's a really skilled guy and he's talked about how, you know, he was drafted fifth overall by the Islanders. And I covered some of those Islander teams with him and he was, he could have he could be occasionally a bit of a disgruntled young man not getting the ice time and the and the opportunity he thought he needed um or deserved uh and now he's getting he's getting a chance to play with an all-world player he's staying at center which is his natural position which is where he thinks he's best suited you know his his offensive skill and talents really coming out which it hasn't always in the past so you know the Rangers had him for for a little bit last year, and they and they kind of saw what was there. But this year, you know, no nobody really in training camp penciled him in as uh, as a second line center behind Zabanajad. You know, even in camp when they came out with this, it was well, okay, it's kind of a stopgap till Heedle comes back, or you know, whatever it is. I just you know trying to deal with the situation in the moment. But I think I think he's he's definitely matured a lot. So, I mean, improved in terms of skills, probably not, but the skills are showing a lot more and, and his maturation on and off the ice is, is huge. And it's, and it's really helped them too. He's one of the big reasons that they are even thinking about playoffs at this point. All right, Brett, we appreciate your insight and uh, enjoy the all-star weekend. Have fun. All right. Thanks Ron. See you guys. Number 10, right wing, Ron Duguay. I belong here. The way I dressed was different. I had the big 80s hair, and I probably became more popular a few years ago with doing television than I was as a player. Walked the streets, and people recognized me. It is now time for Ron Remembers, where Ron Duguay tells you a story from his past. You've heard the likes of the Cher story, a Donnie Murdoch story. Many Studio 54 stories, and I know a lot of people are waiting for this one. I've been waiting for it. The legendary actress, Farrah Fawcett, rest in peace to her, but an absolute legend. And Ron Duguay will now tell his Farrah Fawcett story in this week's edition of Ron Remembers. Thanks, Jake. Um, and I guess uh, I, um, I really have to be thankful for Andy Warhol, and he's really the one who kind of put me on the map as far as... Um, having connections to meeting several celebrities and it had to do with uh, any deciding to put me on the cover of um, interview magazine from that cover I had um, Steven Spielberg who wanted to meet with me because at the time he was uh, interviewing various actors for the lead role in Raiders of the Lost Ark so he wanted to meet with me and that really came about him having read the interview magazine and um, and so I um, and the one person I wanted to meet <clears throat> was Farrah Fawcett. Uh, I, I didn't have her poster, but everyone else had her poster. 
and I just found her very attractive. I think at the time I was like 24 years old. She was like 36, and she was in New York. She was in New York City doing her Broadway play Burning, and uh, so I caught wind of this one event that she was at, and I thought, you know what? I'd like to meet her. I'm going to have to just go out of my way to do something to meet her, so I got myself invited to this event, and sure enough, she was there. She was there with Ryan O'Neill, and sure enough, I was wanting to go up and kind of introduce myself. Well, she came up and introduced herself to me. I'm like, wow. So the first thing she said, you know, I saw you on the cover of interviews. She was very interesting. I've been wanting to talk to you. And I said, okay. And so we sat and we talked and I sat with the, her and Ryan for that evening. And at the end of it, she said, look at you need to come and see me at, um, on Broadway, watch my Broadway play. I said, yeah, okay. Um, so a couple of weeks went by and I thought, you know what? I, I, I think I'm going to take her up on that. I'm not sure how to do this, but I went about my own way of doing it. I brought my uh, teammate, Eddie Mayo, uh, and I said, Eddie, we're going to a Broadway play, and we're going to go see Farrah. So we bought our own tickets, went to see the show, and, and at halftime, I decided that, uh, you know what, I'm going to go back and go see in a green room afterwards, but i got to get mentally prepared. So at halftime, at the break, I'm in the back at, at the bar, and I have a couple beers, well, maybe six. <laughs> and then I go back and sit down. I said, Eddie... It's over, and um, let's go see if we can get a talk or get close to Farrah. So sure enough, and it was he back then. So I went back to the green room and knocked the door, said I'd introduce myself. I'd like to meet Farrah Fawcett. And her secretary came to the door and said, oh, Ron, hi. Yeah, she's been expecting you. I said, oh, really? Because she actually saw me out there. And so we talked a little bit, and she said, uh, so what are you doing tomorrow night? This is on Friday night. What are you doing tomorrow night, Saturday night? I said, well, I have no plans. She says, well, you want to go out and have a drink? I said, Okay. And, uh, and back then, I had a um, restaurant. It was called Sticks. And along with Sticks, this was Phil Esposito and Ron Gresson. Along with Sticks, we brought a limousine. We had our own driver. And so I uh, had the car for that night. And I said, listen, we're going to go pick up Farrah Fawcett. So we go pick up Farrah. And Farrah is looking stunning. I mean, the, um, she had cut her hair just a little bit. But, but her, uh, her looks, her smile, her... Her just her she was so sweet and I can remember that night what she was wearing she was wearing a skirt and it was a leather skirt with high heels and uh, I was like wow here I am in the car with Farrah Fawcett we're talking I'm kind of shy not sure where to go and I was going to take her back to my restaurant and she turns to me says um, you know Ron I'm really under a lot of stress with this Broadway place says I wouldn't mind smoking some pot I'm, I'm like what really I said well I don't have any <laughs> She says, well, do you know where we can find someone? I said, well, let's go back to my restaurant. I'll talk to my partner, Billy. So we go back, and Billy says, no, I don't have any, but I'm heading down to get some. Do you want to come? So the three of us get in the car. It's myself, Farrah Fawcett, my partner, Billy. We're in the car. We head down to Harlem. We're going to Harlem? Yeah, we're going to Harlem. So we get to Harlem. I think we're on one, around 128th Street. We pull up to this building, dark, and I... I say, Ferris, stay here, lock the doors, we'll be right back. We go up a couple stairs, and we knock on this little window, and it's a sliding door, you know, with the little uh, kind of, um, it's not glass, but little bars. Hand the guy $20, he gets some pot. And now we're back in the car, and I said, uh, okay, so now what? She says, well, let's just go back to your place. We'll have some drinks, and uh, so I'm just going to light up, and uh, I'm just, it's like for her, she had a headache. She didn't feel good. I said, okay, fine, so she smoked a little bit. We have a few drinks, and then afterwards she says, uh, do you want to come back to my place? I said, okay. So we go back to her home place, and, and is anyone there? No, no one there. Okay, so we go back, and 
Um, so we spent some time there, and I fall asleep. Very tired, fall asleep. <laughs> to about 9 a.m., Fair comes running into the room. She says, Ron, Ron, get up, get up, get your clothes on. I said, what? She says, my mother's here. Your mother's here. Okay, where do I go? She just go on the balcony. <laughs> so I wrote in the balcony. I'm there in, in this long chair and feeling very uncomfortable. Her mother comes walking up, and I have no idea how to talk. I have no idea what to say other than hi. And we had a brief conversation, and her mother leaves, and I said, Farrah, is everything okay? She says, yeah, yeah, not a problem. And I, not a, I never did ask her about, like, where's Ryan? Apparently, they weren't seeing each other at the time he had gone to L.A. And so this went on for a couple months. And um, we really, uh, we, got, we got very comfortable with each other until one day, I, uh, and this is probably, now we're probably looking into April, and I show up to practice, Herb Brooks' coach. And uh, he had kind of had this talk with me about um, staying out of page six, being the sports page, and sure enough, I was in page six once again, and it had something to do with me being C. Went Farah, and, and he opened up. He says, "Look at Ron, you you just really need to stop. You need to be concentrating on being a hockey player." Well, sure enough, two months after that, I got traded, and that's where the story ends. I'm with a friend, a hockey player, played 11 years in the NHL. Him and I shared some time here in New York as New York Rangers, and also. In L.A. with the L.A. Kings. Played 11 years. And what's so special about this man is in the history of Ranger players, there's the top 100 likable or all-time great players. He falls into number 87. Yes, 87. And welcome, Tom Laidlaw. Tom, I don't know if you even knew that. Number 87, all-time great Ranger players. Great to be here, Ron, with you. And I'm a little upset. I should at least be, I think, like an E. Six. I'm very surprised that you only made 87. So, <laughs> well, when you look back at um, you had come in from college, you were drafted in '79, I believe. You had played college, and you come to the Rangers, six-round pick. What were your thoughts going into that first season? Did you believe that? Did you have enough in you to think that you could make the NHL and play for the New York Rangers? Well, that's a great question. Um, you know, obviously, like you, like a lot of people, right? You grow up, especially growing up in Canada, your dream all your life. Uh, the kid is playing in the National Hockey League, uh, you know, and I think you know, yeah, like I had confidence like during my college career. I, you know, things really went well. I four year captain up in Northern Michigan, all that kind of stuff. And our team ranked number one in the country my last year. So you feel good about your game. But then once you get to the, you know, the, your first training camp, and uh, there's guys like yourself and Phyllis Azito and Barry Beck and uh, Steve Vickers and all these guys. You're like, you know, you watch yourself and others on TV all the time, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, this is the real deal, right? So uh, I think there is a little bit of that doubt in your mind. I, well, I don't know about doubt. It's just I think you have so much respect for the guys that are playing the game. You almost have to put that aside a little bit so you say to yourself, listen, I'm, I'm pretty good too. That's kind of the battle you have with your mind. So once training camp got going, I felt good about myself. And, you know, pretty sure it was our coach then, and he treated me well and gave me lots of opportunities. So I, I feel like, well, these guys are starting to believe in me, which made me believe in myself more. And uh, and ultimately, it, but it's funny though. Until they finally tell you, I don't know who you were. Until they finally tell you tell you that you're going to get, you know, now you've made it. Go ahead and get your place to stay. It's you're still uh, you know you're doubting it the whole time. And once they do this, like wow, I finally did it. Yeah, what did you think your role was? Um, you know what, uh, Frank Shield made it pretty clear about where I was. There was my there was myself, uh, Eddie Hospitar, and uh, 
Chris Katsopoulos all came in, you know, we're big guys, all like 6'1", 6'2", 210, 215 pounds, and we could fight. And, and uh, Freddie was, you know, Freddie, Freddie, he didn't talk a whole lot, but he pulled the three of us in one time. He said, listen, you're not going to play the first five minutes of the game. You're not going to play the last five minutes of the game. You're all six foot two, 210 pounds. You're big guys. Now, I'm not telling you to fight, but what do you think you can do to help this hockey team? You know, so uh, I'll never forget because it's funny. Like our first game, uh, you, you won't remember this, but our first game we went into Boston. You know, they had Terry O'Reilly, Dan Johnson, and John Wensick, and all these guys. And they're like, "Oh my God, no!" And my first, one of the first period, I can't remember. I, I actually shot the puck into our own net. I banked it off John Davidson's uh, leg into the net. And it was one of those deals. You come back to the bench, and it was such a bonehead play. Like there's no way a coach could come to you and say, you know, try to correct the mistake. It's like, well, yeah, obviously you're not supposed to shoot in your own net, you know. You come back to the bench and nobody's talking to you and I'm thinking to myself, oh God, I'm going home for, you know, my career's done. Next night, you know, I survived that game. Next night we go into Toronto and um, uh, Robert Picard was playing for the Leafs and he butt into me right in front of our bench and uh, the whole bench jumped up there, outraged, you know, and Freddie sure was mad and everything like that. And I think, okay, after last night, I can't let this happen. You know, I, I got to do something about it. So I stood up and, and just suckered him and knocked him out cold at the center ice to, to make Picard's and, uh, it was after that game, they told me to get a place to stay that made for the National Hockey League. So uh, Freddie made it very clear what they wanted me to do. This past week, the Rangers, Islanders have been going at it. They played three games. And their talk about, uh, you know, the rivalry coming back. What do you remember about your day, our days, of the rivalry going against the Islanders? Well, I'm not telling you something you don't know. But obviously, the Islanders were in the, you know, winning all their cups right then when I came up. So I came up in 80, 81. So the year before that, they'd won their cup. You guys have been to the finals two years before that, you know, and knocked them out of the playoffs. So I was walking into something that uh, was, it was heated. Like our pre, our preseason game, no disrespect to the guys now, but by any means, uh, you know, they battle hard. But I remember our preseason games were like wars. They shouldn't even bring a puck out. You know, we just, uh, everybody was trying to settle low scores or prove that they weren't going to back down. And, you know, the Clark Gillies and Bob Nystrom and, uh, and uh, it was, it was intense, great hockey. Like I really felt like, you know, you played in games like those and you really like, started now to become more of a pro, you know, like, like what it was like to be prepared, you know, battle with these guys and now we're in the middle of winning their cups and everything. So the battle was, uh, it was intense. Um, I just, you know, I've got to be, you know, say, you, I think you were in L.A. when John Tonelli was out there as well. So we got to be friends with him and he was a big time player with the Islanders and we just hated each other and get to play with those guys and, uh, you know, see the, how they prepare and how professional were. It was uh, it was fun. It was tough, but it was uh, uh, it was a blast. You decided to challenge yourself and wanted to do something different. You end up being part of Survivor. How did that come about? Yeah. Um, well, you're right. Uh, I've just uh, you know you like yourself. You kept yourself in fantastic shape as you've gotten older. It's like I I, I feel like when I look at you, you said to yourself, "I'm not going to give in and just get old. I'm going to take care of myself and you know continue to be you know Ron Dugay who I am." And, and so I, I kind of felt the same way about myself that I didn't ever want to just uh, sit back and, you know, not take care of myself. We kind of fade off in the sunset. So I've always, uh, you know, the last few years more and more been trying to push myself physically and mentally to challenge myself. And uh, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, who, as you know, that uh, produces uh, a lot of movies. I, I, somehow I, I think he's all part owner and is a survivor, Amazing Race, and Big Brother. And uh, he'd come to the NHL, not specifically looking for me, but just for a couple of older guys uh, who had played together 
to be on Big Brother. Um, and uh, guys like you, like everybody needs a, uh, like a U.S. passport. Like guys like yourself, you didn't have a U.S. passport. Or other guys who were in shape. So we couldn't find anybody that fit the bill with me to be on to go on Big Brother. So then they asked me about Survivor. And then I would have to go through the regular interview process. I had to go for casting in Los Angeles. And, you know, during the whole process of doing it, you're kind of like, well, no, I'll throw my hat in the ring. It's you know, probably not going to happen, but you know, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And then as things got moving forward, I realized, man, I really got a shot of being on the show. And then when they finally called, they called me and told me I was on, it was, um, you know, it was interesting because you, you, you watch the show, you know what's going on, but until they finally drop you off on the island, now starts to play like you like a castaway you know you've got nothing there but the clothes on your back um it, it was pretty challenging it was a blast something i really uh, i'm glad i did you had a little less hair than tom hanks did in castaway i'll say that uh you were <laughs> the 39th season and you were the first canadian born person to be on the show can you take us behind the scenes as a viewer to survivor how much of it is real how much of it is fake what we see and what we don't see on camera yeah, well, and it is 100% real. There's no, uh, you know, we don't go to any hotel once they're dropped off there. You know, you make it on your own. You, you sleep in the dirt. Uh, you eat rice and coconuts unless you win some food in a challenge. Um, you know, there's no toilet paper, no toothbrushes, no mirrors. Uh, I lost 27 pounds when I was out there. Um, and I wasn't even out there the full 39 days where I got to go off. So uh, it, it is the real deal. They, I mean, you're not in danger of anything happening to you. The camera crews are always there 24-7. So that's that's the one part that it's not it's not fake by any means. But they film everything, but when they have to edit it down to like a one or two hour show, obviously they can't show everything, all interaction. So sometimes you don't see everything that's happened to to get to a final conclusion that you ultimately see on TV. So it's um, you know when you're watching it as a player and you know what's happened, it's you think yourself, wow, they missed all that, but just logically, you just they can't show everything on the show. But it was. Um, but it is for real. Like it's like as far as really testing you mentally and physically, that that is a big part of it. It's like you've got to, you're out on the island, and you really have to now form these, try to form alliances with these people who you know you're trying to get off the game, and they're trying to get you off the game. At the same time, you got to trust each other to a certain point. Uh, you got to you got teamwork that comes into it because you're when you're still a part of like different tribes, you've got to go to these challenges. You got to work together to try to win the challenge. If you lose the challenge, obviously somebody from your team gets pulled off. So. So, you know, it, it was definitely, it was harder for me. Like, I was the oldest guy that had out there in the last, like, 10 years, I think it was. And, uh, you know, from the background of playing, I was really trying to get everybody to work as a team together in challenges so we didn't have to vote each other off. Like, my goal was to go there and never lose a challenge. Well, we ultimately only won one challenge that I was on. And we lost the rest of them. So, I would get a little frustrated with that part of it. And then, you, you know, you got to be careful. You don't get frustrated with the rest of the players and the team because then they target you to vote you off. So, um, it was it was great though. Like it, like when I, it's just that that challenge thing, you know, to push yourself to do something that like whoever would have thought you're gonna be on an island and feed you someplace. And you're a hockey player, so you fought guys. You're used to punching guys in the face. I mean, there had to have been times you talk about getting frustrated where you wanted to fight one of these people. Were there anything that we didn't <laughs> see on camera where you try to beat someone's ass? Uh, no, it was, uh, there, there was sometimes we get a little frustrated. Actually, I really I, I, that's a great question by you because I really trained myself realizing that. I probably would get frustrated sometimes, like even just socially, you know, you're out at camp and like you're trying to build a fire or you're building, you know, the, your shelter or whatever. And, and, and my, I'm the old farm boy. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I know how to do it. You know, this is the way to do it. And, but you can't, you can't let yourself get to that point. Cause you gotta give everybody an opportunity. In fact, like I really practiced making fire a lot before I went out there and uh, we couldn't get a fire going. We ultimately got the Flint, which helps make the fire. 
And I took a shot at it for a couple of minutes. And, and usually I could make fire right away, but it wasn't working. And I'm getting frustrated and thinking, I want to make fire because it's embarrassing. You're supposed to be able to know how to make fire. And uh, so I thought, okay, I can't just keep hogging it because everybody's sitting around wanting to take a turn at trying to make fire. So I handed this young girl. It was really nice. Uh, she made fire in about 15 seconds after I couldn't make it in about five minutes. So it was pretty funny. And I had to kind of contain myself there. You know, okay, just settle down. So. So all this, Tom, has led to True Grit Life. What is True Grit Life? Yeah, you know, I uh, just like we talked before, and I really mean it, Ron, when I, when I talk about you and, uh, you know, like I really see that you physically and mentally, you keep pushing yourself too. And and that's really, um, you know, I, I got on and I started like doing all this branding and marketing kind of stuff where I was, uh, you know, I was getting up, I get up every morning at 3.30 in the morning. I make my bed perfectly at 3.30. I go outside at 4 o'clock and I make sure I'm out by 4 o'clock for a march. And I, it's really a walk, but I call it a march. Because the idea is you're supposed to get the most out of each stride that you take while you're on that walk. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm disciplined with my diet. I weigh all my foods. I chart it into an app, my phone, all this stuff. And it's all, it all stems from, uh, I, you know, I, I look back in my life. Uh, and any success or failures that I had or how I you know, rebounded from failures. And a lot of my life was just more of just showing up every day. And I look back, like I grew up on a farm, a dairy farm, Brampton, Ontario, right outside of Toronto. And my father and grandfather would be up every day milking those cows every day. And it didn't matter you know, what the weather was, how they felt, how they were sick. They had to get up and milk those cows. And really, that's like I wasn't. I, I'm not trying to say this to be humble or anything. I really wasn't a very, great player. And for me, it was just more showing up every day, being that guy that you can rely on every day, being that steady player. And the same thing when I got in the aging business, when I got done playing, it was the same thing. I really didn't think I was the smartest guy in the room. I just that showed up every day and tried to, you know, work everybody and always be there and always be consistent and everything. And it's you know, like kind of with that true grit kind of mentality, just you know, grinding through whatever you had to grind through. And that's really where I, I realized, you know, where it came from for me. My success came from was, you know, following my father and my grandfather, the way they led their lives. So that's where we came up with the true red life. Yeah, so I'm going to read you a quote that you've said. I am an example that you can do anything you want to do. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, totally. You know, and that's part of the reason I went on Survivor, too. Again, being, you know, the oldest guy they had on the show, the first Canadian, uh, the oldest guy they had on the show in the last 10 years, anyways, and first Canadian, the first hockey player and all that stuff. But, you know, just just proving that uh, you, you, I really do believe that. You know, we were both lucky to play with Wayne Gretzky, one of the greatest athletes ever played in Los Angeles, and the great career he had. And and I I, I really mean this seriously. The interesting suit you think too, but I look at Wayne that he wasn't some specially gifted athlete. That he wasn't like this great skater, great shot. He wasn't like this physical specimen. It was really what was inside of him, like his heart and his desire. Like he his desire was to be the best player that ever played the game. And I really think that's like with life, whether you want to, whatever your job is, your, your relationships with people that, you know, don't ever settle. Like you don't have to be, like, I guess, like in a basketball sense, like you've got to be a certain height to be LeBron James or Michael Jordan and all that. But most of the rest of us, you've got whatever you need to have to become what you want to be. You don't have to have some special gifts that just, you know, decide that you wanted that. Nothing going to do what you have to do to get it. Not many guys, Tom, have got the chance to play alongside the great one, and you did with the L.A. Kings. Did you ever marvel at playing alongside him? And I mean, you look at—I was looking at his numbers today, and his assist numbers are really what stand out to you. I mean, they were mind-blowing how good he was uh, passing the puck and obviously scoring. What was it like playing with him? Well, you're talking about Ron Duguay? 
<laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah. <laughs> you you marveled you marveled at me off the ice, right? On oh, and off no. the ice. Dude, can, I, can, I, can I tell my story that I have to tell about Ron Dewey? Can I tell we, we'd love to hear it. Yes. Okay. So, um, so again, I and I've said this many times. He was a fantastic teammate. So I tell the story; it's kind of funny. So I don't want to, you know. But Deuce was prepared. He's a great athlete and all that kind of stuff. Very dedicated. But obviously, you know, we all had fun back then. And, you know, when you come in as a rookie, the older players usually, that's like a kind of a rite of passage. You know, the old guys know they're going to retire, so they're passing on their wisdom to the young players. You know, Carol Vadney, we, unfortunately, we lost him, but he was great with me. Come in, like, tell, tell me which stick I should use and all this kind of stuff. So everybody's giving me this advice. And so Duke, you know, was, you know, he was Ron Duguay, you know, page six, you know, Studio 54, you know, all the, you know, the hair and the whole bit. And, um, so, you know, but Dukes was uh, very focused and dedicated. They didn't talk a whole lot that time in the locker room. So Dukes did talk to you. It's kind of like, as a young player, you really you stop and subject. I really need to listen to what Ron's telling me. So we get on the bus one night after a game, and, and uh, Ron sits down in front of me, right seat right in front of me. And he leans back to me, and he, he, he kind of motions that he wants to tell me something. I'm thinking to myself, wow, this is this is a great moment in my life here. You know, Ron Dugay, Mr. Ron Dugay is going to tell me some sage advice. And it's like, you know, the lights are flashing like a movie or something. I think like the music's coming on, this, this big scene. It's like I should get a notepad, write it down. And uh, Ron leads back to me and he says, Tom, sleep is overrated. You only need two hours of sleep every night. <laughs> and that <laughs> was uh, we, we joked around about it. I, I used that story. We, we, did, we did the charity event. I told that story and I was like, yeah. I played up a little bit, but he was, but Deuce is great. He just, uh, you live, Rod Duguay lived life all out, so that's the way to go. That's the way to do so. Are there any Studio 54 stories? Ron usually shares a lot of them. Do you have any uh, stories from the dance floor with Ron? You know what? It was just, it was just dying down when I came in. So I, my first year was 81, and it was just shut down, and it was, really wasn't the thing anymore. And I'd heard all the stories, so I was disappointed that it really wasn't, didn't go there. Uh, but there was, uh, there was plenty of other stories. Uh, we, we had a little place we used to hang out at, uh, Warren and Oreskes up on the east side. We'd go there for a bike eat after every game. And uh, that was nice. Uh, there was probably so the, the walls could speak. We'd be in a lot of trouble right now. Tom, you and I can talk forever. Uh, appreciate your time. Because I know I want to touch a little bit on Herb Brooks and what he meant to you, what he meant to me. And, uh, and no, you and I had talked about you possibly doing Amazing Race, the reality show Amazing Race. We still need to talk about that. But we'll have you on some other time. We really appreciate your time. Wish you the best, my friend. Great to be on. Thanks, Ryan. Glad you're doing well on this show. It's fantastic. Great job. Ladies and gentlemen, we ask that you direct your attention to Center Ice for a special presentation. That's a wrap for episode 8 of Up in the Blue Seats. Thanks to our producer, Jake Brown, for making it happen. Subscribe to the show and rate us five stars wherever you get your podcast. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ron Duguay 10 Thanks for joining us. Talk to you next Thursday.